I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss welcome to the other hand a podcast brought to you by cjp economics a collaboration between jim power and chris johns where we discuss the intersection between politics finance and economics our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our substack website and that substack site also contains our extensive body of written work thanks for listening and reading if you like our work please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter Hello again. Good, good to talk for the second time this week. Um, it's it's great to be back on track again with the podcast, and uh, great to see us continuing to get positive feedback from most people. So that that's all very very good. Today there's a pretty packed agenda as always. I want to talk a little bit about um, you know the international scene, what's happening. There's also a lot of economic data news out of Ireland that I'd like to cover a little bit, just to keep our listeners informed on what's going on at a sort of a micro level in the Irish economy. But I, I want to start off by quoting something that I came across this afternoon. I was listening to a live webinar from the International Monetary Fund and the headline out of that IMF webinar really struck me as being very forceful and I think it resonates with something we were talking about last last week and the challenges to globalisation. But I'll just read out the headline from the IMF webinar, we are facing a crisis on top of a crisis, pandemic and war, and another growing risk. And that risk is the fragmentation of the world economy into geopolitical blocks. I think that's very stark stuff. And it it, it, it does reflect a lot of what's going on at, at the moment, and certainly does reflect this significant challenge to the future of globalization as we've come to know it 
over the last 30 years. I don't know what your perspective is, but my perspective certainly would be that this fragmentation of the world economy into uh, pretty divided geopolitical blocks is not a positive development. Um, it's dangerous. It's not good economically. And I think it really is a lose-lose situation um, from my perspective, at least. What do you think? It's complicated. I t totally understand why the IMF are making these sorts of prognostications, issuing these kinds of warnings. The end of globalization is a, is a piece that I've seen written several times now over the last few weeks. As you say, for fairly obvious reasons, it's politics driving the, the economics. The most recent phase of globalization that you referred to there, the last 30 years, is essentially the, the two things happened. It was the fall of the Berlin Wall that brought Eastern European countries uh, formerly of the Soviet bloc, and indeed the Soviet Union, Russia itself, um, into the world trading system, at least informally, and in some cases very formally via the WTO. Uh, but equally important was the accession of China into the world trading organization a good few decades ago now, and that produced all sorts of effects uh, which accelerated globalization that are still, that still debated today. And we could spend a whole podcast, we could spend several podcasts on the effects of that, all of that put together and what it meant. But if you just think about China, in America, they call it the China shock, because a lot of economists there think that the deindustrialization of the United States, the disappearance of smokestack industries, of car manufacturing, steel production, mining, all those sorts of industries, that the jobs that went from those industries went to China. There is some data to suggest that that's partly true, but at best it's only partly true. It is, it, there is controversy over what drove what, but there is um, a, a strong view that uh, as important, if not more important than China entering the world trading system, it was just simply technological change and that these jobs were going to go anyway and that they haven't gone all to China. They've, they've gone to the rise of the robots, the rise of the machines, because America, for example, is still producing as much, if not more, manufacturers, industrial goods than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, it's just that it's doing it with less people. They be, the, the companies became more productive. So disentangling all of that and what it actually meant um, is still, as I say, very controversial. What it did mean was that, of course, it was very positive for China. The people that work on this sort of data reckon about 700 million Chinese citizens were lifted out of poverty as a result of China entering the world trading system. So as always, there are trade-offs. And those that argue that America and other countries, the UK, France, lost jobs, hollowed out its industrial base, the, the beneficiaries were people who got those jobs elsewhere. And the argument is whether or not how much technology was also part of that story. So it's a very complicated, nuanced picture. But um, at the end of the day, at the national level, countries like Ireland, the UK, United States, France, benefit from imports of cheap goods. That's what globalization in terms of trade actually means, and that we as consumers of those cheaper goods are better off. Um, it's unfortunately the fact that within countries, some people are made more better off than others. And if you've lost your job to globalization, then you have a problem with it. And I think that, as much as any other factor, and there are lots of other factors, has, has contributed to the political malaise that we are in with respect to what's going on with Brexit in the UK, Trump and Trumpism in the United States, and Le Pen coming up on the outside, making a run for president in France, 
and indeed elsewhere. It's the losers from globalization that I think are at least in part drivers and in some ways understandable drivers of, of, of agitating for political change, for saying the system is rigged, globalization is global only, we have suffered. So I, I, as I say, we could talk about it all day. I've already spoken about it for far too long on this podcast. But as I say, yes, you can see easily the political dynamic of both Russia and China causing the world to split up into different trading blocks compared to the one that we've had for the last 30 years. But I do point to vested interests and always look to where those lie. China withdrawing from the world trading system would look distinctly odd given how much that it has benefited from it. And so I would be reluctant to bang the drum with absolute certainty to say that China is going to go its own way and is going to go completely self-sufficient and withdraw from the world trading system. It may slow down. It may it may develop some key industries from a self-sufficiency point of view, but a wholesale redu- uh, um, withdrawal, I find that very hard because I think that the consequences for China would be the flip side of the benefits that it had from entering the system. So I, I think it, it is very complicated and um, it isn't as simple, perhaps, as some, some commentators are, are suggesting. But yeah, it's fairly obvious that, that the world trading system is in for a much rockier ride over the next few years than it has had over the last couple of decades. Yeah, if, if you look at the, the rise of the so-called strong men around the world, um, and it is strong men rather than um, women aren't really involved. But you look at Orban in Hungary, you look at Erdogan in Turkey, you look at Donald Trump in the United States, you look at Boris in the United Kingdom, uh, you look at Putin in Russia. Um, they, this, this strong sort of political nationalism is flying in the face, of course, of globalization. So uh, there's political forces, and I take your point totally, about you know vested interests having a vested interest in making sure that globalization survives in China being a prime example of that but uh, you superimpose on top of this what's happening on the political front so uh, I agree with you it's in for a much more rocky ride there was a period in my life Chris where I worked in trading rooms in AIB and Bank of Ireland where currencies were a key part of my life um, and um, I made a fool of myself on many occasions trying to forecast currency movements because of all the asset classes that you try and forecast uh, currencies were definitely the most difficult there are just so many different factors at play uh, but I, I was just looking at currency movements today and uh, the, the significant stuff happening that has kind of flown under the radar um, the euro is very very weak against sterling and the dollar uh, the euro dollar rate at the moment is trading at just over 1.07, which I think is the strongest dollar against the euro in quite some time. And on the sterling euro exchange rate front, which was traditionally an incredibly important exchange rate relationship from an Irish perspective, has become less so over the years as we have um, diversified away from the UK market, but still very important, particularly for the agri-food sector. Uh, but that is down at 82.5 pence to the euro at the moment. So very, very strong sterling, very strong dollar, a weak euro. And uh, I, th- yeah, I think yeah, I think that's the weakest euro against the dollar in two years. Yes, I at would, least. I, I would say that. And uh, l- looking at the market rationale for these moves we're seeing today, particularly, um, the European Central Bank came out today. Um, and I think 
flew in the face of what the markets had been anticipating and expecting that the European Central Bank would start to sound much more cautionary notes on the future of inflation and interest rates. Uh, but in the event, the ECB's stance didn't change very much. Um, it said that it would end the net asset purchases in the third quarter of the year and that interest rates would be raised sometime after that. That's pretty much exactly what the ECB said a month ago, despite the fact that since then, the whole inflationary dynamic has has disimproved and deteriorated quite significantly. Um, and, uh, you know, the, Euro- the European Central Bank um, is still not giving on the interest rate front. Um, and, and you can see it's a, it's a difficult challenge because clearly growth is now down everywhere and is going down and inflation is up everywhere and going up. So quite a challenge for the European Central Bank. I have a quiz for you, Jim, or a trivia question, not trivial for the country concerned. Which country, it's a NATO member, I'll give you a clue, currently has an inflation rate of 62%. Estonia? Turkey. Oh, Turkey, sorry, yeah, Turkey. Today, they didn't put up interest rates, despite having an inflation rate of 62%. So their their monetary policy is uh, being driven by their strongman. You mentioned him earlier, Erdogan. That's another interesting study in power politics and economics. Uh, I think that he last year dismissed the governor of the central bank for putting interest rates up or threatening to put interest rates up. So here, um, closer to home where we have independent central banks, they won't be too worried about that. But I guess the ECB will be very relieved that Turkey isn't part of the EU, as the Brexiteers always promised it would be, and therefore isn't part of the euro, because they would have a real, a real problem on their hands. But we have had two big interest rate rises this week. That's the second part of my quiz. Where were they, Jim? And what size? New Zealand and Canada. Okay. Both, and this is the more interesting point, both 50 basis points, both half a percentage point. So uh, central banks on the, the, I'm I'm not going to insult either country by saying on the periphery, but of some of the smaller countries, Canada is part of the G7. It's not that small. Have been I've started to move by half a percentage point at a time when the uh, Bank of England and um, the Federal Reserve in the United States have been only going incrementally. So, um, is this? It, does it, all of these big interest rate rises lie in our future? Because what the most interesting thing for me about the inflation debate is that, firstly, I take a lot of cues from where the United States is in this debate because I do think that where the U.S. goes, eventually the rest of us will follow. But it, it seems the case that places like New Zealand and Canada are actually leading the way. Um, I do know that there is, I think, almost a nailed on certainty in markets eyes, the way these assets are priced, people bet on interest rate moves in the future. And it seems that almost with 100 percent certainty that next month's move in interest rates in the United States will be half a percentage point. The couple of things that's going on there that really interest me are first Amongst the people that both you and I read and follow in the economics finance community, uh, there is a strong view. It's not by no means universal, but there's quite a strong view emerging just over the last few days, really, that U.S. inflation has either peaked or is very close to peaking. I think that's a pretty brave forecast. Who knows? Might be right, might be wrong. And then within the monetary policy circles of the United States, it's it's about whether or not they should quickly get their interest rates to what's called a neutral level or whether that they should actually start to be monetary contractionists, whether they should actually 
rather than taking their foot off the accelerator completely, which is what being neutral is all about, that they're neither adding or subtracting to economic growth from an interest rate point of view, or whether they should start to slow the economy, actively slow the economy. Because that that, that policy decision um, will make a huge difference to how high US interest rates go and how high US interest rates go will, will in part at least determine how high our interest rates go over here. I don't know the answer to that, Jim, but I suspect that there is a growing chorus within the Federal Reserve to actually start slowing growth now. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I, I think there is. And even if you look at the minutes of the last meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee, um, there was, I think, two members at least looking for a half percent increase. Um, and they, as we know, it delivered a quarter percent. Um, the other day after one of our podcasts, we got a very uh, strong message from somebody basically saying um, that the ECB was way behind the curve, that inflation was now out of control and that interest rates should be increased significantly immediately. So that, that there is that view of the world out there. Um, I was... at, at 107, 108, Jim, there's, a, I think, a very obvious question it, 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 that, that comes up, which is that we're now getting towards the bottom or, depending on your point of view, the top of the range for the dollar-euro exchange rate that it's been in now for quite some time. And are we going to break out of that range? And could you see parity or below? Of course you could. The, 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 I think there's no doubt about that. If the market expectation grows that there's going to be a half percent at the next FOMC meeting in the States, and if the markets believe what the European Central Bank um, was saying today, the slightly uh, relaxed tone it adopted once again, well, there's, there's every possibility that you could see um, that situation evolving. And the geopolitics of this are presumably that the closer you are to Ukraine, the less you want anything to do from an investment uh, or financial market point of view. That might be a bit crude. That might be totally simplistic. But from a you know geopolitical perspective, a war perspective, uh, buying the European currency might seem far with nothing else changing, with with nothing to do with interest rates or economic growth or anything like that. Just looking at at politics, and, and there is always a political risk premium built into asset prices, particularly exchange rates, you just might think that the dollar in this war-driven environment that we're in, war in Europe, uh, the dollar becomes more attractive intrinsically. And that's, yes. and that's at least part of what's going on. Yeah, it, do, it, do, it does indeed, absolutely. Which I, I guess from an Irish export perspective um, is good news. Yeah, I, I think that, yeah. again, I'm making... Uh, the same comments that you make that um, I, I did used to be an exchange rate forecaster as well for similar reasons to you. And I do think that it, it is the in that time on a cliche, the ultimate mugs game. But I wouldn't be at all surprised to see this dollar get even stronger. Yeah, I remember, Chris, being on a uh, when I started working in financial markets initially, I was sent to Geneva for a week to do a course on exchange rate forecasting. And for four and a half days, we had all of these uh, technical experts in showing us how to develop models for very sophisticated models for forecasting exchange rates. And at lunchtime on the Friday, and we were packing up to go home that evening, but at lunchtime on the Friday, uh, an expert, a currency expert from Goldman Sachs arrived in to talk to us. David Morrison. Indeed. And he said, you've spent the week 
um, learning all of these models, um, I just say one thing, or there's only one thing I want to say to you, none of them work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, just to, by way of anecdote, I didn't know David well at all, um, but he used to teach on that course regularly every year. And one year he couldn't teach it and he asked me to do it for him. So I have actually taught on that course and did that session okay. for him. And what I hadn't realized was that they had had, so I turned up on that Friday afternoon in the most lovely seminar room when you could see Lake Geneva, Absolutely. the lake in, in yeah, the background beautiful. and the fountain and all that kind of stuff. So it was a glorious setting. And I proceeded to do exactly what David had done, what any practitioner would do. Without, I hadn't been briefed by him. He just had said to me, would you do this for me? Because uh, he knew that um, I had some experience of exchange rate economics. And I did exactly what he did, but I did it in spades because I didn't know that um, they'd spent four and a half days doing all the academic stuff. And the thing was, Jim, the academics were in the room. So I spent an afternoon trashing all this stuff, saying it doesn't work, it never works, and it never will work. And this is what you need to look at for exchange rates. And then I, I took these serious, you know, professors of economics stood up and said, well, it isn't quite as cut and dried as Mr. Johns seems to think. So it was, very, it was, it was a very funny, um, excruciatingly embarrassing moment for me. But back to the agenda. You have some yeah. stuff on the Irish economy for us. Yeah, there's, there's, there's quite a lot uh, happening in the Irish economy over the last couple of days. Um, yesterday, the Department of Finance updated what it calls its stability program. This is uh, a, 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 an official forecast of the economy that they do twice a year, typically at budget time in October and then again in April. Uh, they updated yesterday, and as you can well imagine, uh, there's been a significant amendment to forecasts since the ones they made last October. Um, modified domestic demand is now forecast to expand by 4.25% this year. That's two and a quarter percentage points lower than the six and a half percent it was forecasting last October. And uh, it's, it's modified domestic demand I refer to rather than gross domestic product because we have covered in this podcast on numerous occasions just how unreliable gross domestic product is as an indicator of what's going on in the ground in the Irish economy. Can I just briefly interrupt you there and draw your attention to something that uh, a Bloomberg commentator wrote on this very issue last week? You've probably heard of Tyler Cowen. He's a professor in the United States and he tried to rehabilitate without um, going over the top GDP for countries like Ireland. And it was done in a very innovative way because he said, if your GDP GNP gap, the one that Ireland, of course, has, is enormous and you take a look at the reasons why, and it's got mostly to do with actual real as opposed to funny money investment flows, proper FDI, it's actually a wonderful leading, contemporaneous and leading indicator of how strong, attractive and decent your economy is. It, 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 that difference does actually contain real information rather than just being dismissed as, as we tend to do. Um, it's a fascinating article. I'd urge you to read it and I'd urge any of our listeners to have a look who are interested in this admittedly rather arcane. Yeah, I, I, I missed that, Chris, but it, it strikes me there's two things about Irish GDP that I think fly in the face of um, what Tyler was saying. One is aircraft leasing seriously distorts because Ireland is one of the global leaders as in aircraft leasing going back to the GPA days in the 1970s and 80s. 
Um, and of course, that is costing Ireland a little bit at the moment because aircraft leasers have got into significant difficulty with aircraft in Russia. Uh, but uh, but anyway, that's an aside. Uh, but so that's something that's in our GDP, but doesn't uh, represent a real flow of economic activity as such. And the second piece, of course, is the intellectual property assets. Um, um, since 2015, we've seen significant inflows of very valuable intellectual property assets into Ireland for tax reasons. So, of course, that distorts GDP and doesn't represent a real flow. Um, I, I think that, you know, the, the difference between GDP and GNP, gross national product, which are what we call the factor outflows, in other words, the profit re- net profit repatriations by the multinational sector, um, I, I think that difference definitely does tell us something positive about what's going on in the economy. Uh, but the, the modified domestic demand piece, or GNI star, which is a variation on that, um, you know, I, I, I still think it's a more representative picture. But I do take the point that we wouldn't have these distortions if Ireland was not an attractive place for investors to invest in tangible or intangible assets. So I, I take that point. But anyway, the... Department of Finance um, has revised down somewhat, but I, I think um, an expansion of four and a quarter percent in modified domestic demand in 2022, given the external and indeed the domestic circumstances that exist at the moment, would represent um, a very good outturn for the economy. Um, one of the, I guess, an interesting part of the whole forecast yesterday also was in terms of the public finances. Um, Last October, the Department of Finance had forecast a deficit of 8.3 billion this year, which is equivalent to 3.4% of GNI star. Um, Yesterday, that was revised to 2 billion, equivalent to just 0.8% of GNI star. So despite the deterioration in the economic outlook, and it's a significant deterioration, Um, we're still looking at the public finances turning out much stronger than anticipated. And that's largely reflecting the fact that uh, tax revenue buoyancy remains very strong, as we've spoken about and I've written about um, numerous times on our Substack site. So, um, you know, and that's all good. And next year, the department is forecasting a surplus of 1.2 billion. So, you know, that's it. So despite the downward revision, um, if this sort of outturn were to be delivered for the Irish economy this year, um, it would represent a pretty positive outcome. Uh, this morning, we also got the latest trade data for the month of February. And uh, the way I like to analyze this trade data is to uh, take the cumulative performance year to date So for the first two months of the year up to the end of February, overall exports are up by 25.1% year on year uh, to Great Britain, up by 35.4% to Northern Ireland, up by 59.6%. And um, and, and I'll come back on this in a second with the caveat, but exports of food to Great Britain in the first two months of the year were 37.3% ahead of last year. And on the import side, imports are up 37.5%, 112% up from Great Britain, 
36.6% up from Northern Ireland and uh, food imports from Great Britain up by 65.4%. So on the face of it, these trade statistics would suggest that actually the Brexit effect is gone. It's having no impact whatsoever on the Irish economy. Uh, But I, I would caution that the first two months of last year uh, were significantly distorted by the fact that the customs regulations on trade between Ireland and Great Britain had just been introduced. It's when Brexit started. So there was a very, very depressed level of trade in the first two months of last year. So the year-in-year growth rates are being exaggerated. But having said that, uh, the underlying story is that Ireland's export performance continues to be very, very impressive. And, And of course, if the exchange rate prognostications you were making about stronger dollar and by definition stronger sterling against the euro were to come to pass obviously that will be good news for the competitiveness of irish exports absolutely and we do remember the days when these exchange rates would have been front page news in the irish times and and the indo uh those days are gone of course but uh um thankfully we no longer have things like exchange rate crises you remember those those days and from the 90s uh we are we are more mature now i think financially than we we were back then so um all of these things i think are to be welcomed but uh, yeah it looks as if irish trade is, is not that it needs it but it's going to get a nice competitiveness boost from exchange rate moves and um so let's hope that irish business can take full advantage of that i think it's really interesting that you're saying that the brexit effect on the face of it looks as if it's gone from these numbers and I would agree, I've had a quick look at them myself, and that certainly seems to be the case. Uh, I suppose it was inevitable that companies involved in trade would find the new regulations difficult at first, and then would get used to them. And so it, it, we are seeing some learning in action and things stabilizing at a, at a better level. Um, but if you look at the port of Dover at the moment, you would say that uh, Brexit is definitely having an effect on British trade. Uh, the queues at Dover are still extraordinary. Um, it's got a lot to do with um, the P&O issue, ferries being cancelled and all the rest of it. But uh, as a lot of the people involved on the ground are saying, Brexit is still hampering British exports into continental Europe. So um, I, I stand over my repeated claims that Brexit has been in a slow-moving car crash for the British economy. Um, it's... Uh, building each year it's taking its time but i think it, it is it it was is and remains and will be an unmitigated disaster okay um the the final piece i want to focus in on the irish economy and this is a little bit multifaceted but uh you have spoken a number of times in the last year um about bank of england research particularly showing the impact that long-term interest rates have on house prices, okay? And um, we are living in an environment where over the last couple of months, long-term interest rates everywhere, uh, as a result of inflation, as a result of changes to the expectations about what central banks are going to do with short-term interest rates, uh, all of those factors have pushed long-term interest rates up significantly. Um, And at the same time, uh, we get data yesterday from the Irish Central Bank and it's it's ECB data, but uh, it shows that the average mortgage rate in Ireland is the second highest in the Eurozone. 
um, it's more than twice as high as the EU, sorry, the Eurozone average. Um, so we, we can talk about the reasons for that if you understand what they are. I don't quite. But anyway, um, we, we have um, inordinately high mortgage rates in this country. And is it course, not just lack of competition in the banking sector? I think it is, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas the banking sector would argue it's because of the tighter capital conditions they are subjected to by the regulator because of what happened to the banking sector back in 2007, 2008. Uh, but I, I, I think the lack of competition is really, and when you see uh, KBC, Ulster Bank pulling out of the market, this situation is just going to get worse. But I, I guess the real cost of all of this is that if you are a mortgage holder and um, if, if you were paying, okay, the at the average mortgage rate in Ireland in February was 2.76%, okay? The Eurozone average was 1.36%. Um, Finland is the lowest at 0.85%. And Portugal, a country I love, is second lowest at 0.87%. So if Irish mortgage holders were to enjoy those Eurozone or average rates or the lower ones available in some countries, the financial savings that would be made over the lifetime of a mortgage would be absolutely staggering. So if our, if Irish mortgage holders are pissed off at the rates they've been charged at the moment, it is with strong justification. Uh, but unfortunately, I don't see anything happening about it because, as I say, the com- competition in the market is just going to get worse. So uh, pretty dysfunctional banking market here. That's a problem. Um, but anyway, you know, that that that's the backdrop. High mortgage rates here relative to the Eurozone, um, bond long-term interest rates rising, and yet we continue to see an acceleration in house price inflation. Um, national average house prices increased by 15.3%, outside of Dublin 16.8% year on year, and in Dublin 13.5%. And this is where Okay, they they are dramatic house price increases. Okay, but just to put them in some sort of context, national average house prices now, or at least in February, are just two and a half percent lower than the totally unsustainable peak that was achieved in two thousand and seven. Um, Dublin prices are ten point three percent lower, but catching up fast, and in the rest of Ireland, just three point nine percent. But on average. National average house price is just 2.5% below the peaks that were attained in 2007. Does this give you cause for concern? Yes, it does, because we've had house price data out in the UK um, this week, and not as strong as your numbers, but still double-digit year-over-year increases in house prices. Uh, I do think it's got a lot to do with those long-term interest rates, which are the essential determinants of mortgage rates. And I do think that, you know, the housing question, as we've said many times, is, is very complex and many different things need to be done to uh, eliminate the imbalances in, in the housing market, all of which are very difficult to achieve. When a politician tells you that they know how to solve the housing problem, um, beware, because it is incredibly complicated and incredibly difficult, not just to identify the factors that cause these imbalances, to cause these problems, but to actually do something 
to cure them because there are all sorts of vested interests at work in the UK and I know in Ireland as well. If you go down the route of trying to build more homes, you immediately run into nimbyism because nobody wants new housing estates built next to themselves and local politicians always kick off and I know it happens in Ireland as well. Um, sometimes it isn't just a question of building more. I know in Dublin, critics such as myself will say that if Dublin is to solve its housing crisis, at least part of the solution has to be that you need to build up as well as sprawl. I've just come back from a city called Vancouver that, boy, over the last 10, 20 years has, ha has that built itself up. There are high-rise condo and apartment buildings everywhere um, that have been built recently and are being built at the moment. And Vancouver is struggling with incredibly high house prices, despite the fact that it's built up and built an awful lot of properties. Um, so it's not just about supply. You might, as I've said to you before, you might be surprised by the lack of reaction from house prices if you do build more, more houses. Um, and Vancouver has certainly experienced that effect. Uh, I do think that it's going to be a combination of factors that sort out this house price move this house price imbalance thing that we're talking about. It's got to be about housing supply. It's got to be about housing demand as well. And one of the ways in which you can get housing demand down is by higher interest rates. I do think that's coming. Uh, a good old fashioned recession will sort part of the problem out as well by destroying people's incomes. But that's not what we want. But that definitely would. Well, hang on a sec, Chris. Okay, higher interest rates will dampen demand. Mm. But the demand will still exist. The people will still be there who want to live somewhere. Will they? Because one of the things that have one of the reasons why Vancouver, for example, and I suspect Ireland has part of this, is that the there is an awful lot of overseas demand for for property, um, both from investors overseas and people moving to Vancouver. Um, Ireland has a lot of immigration. Um, lots of people want to to live there. Lots of overseas Irish people have high incomes at the moment and are buying property in Ireland. It, it, it's not the only factor. It's probably not the biggest factor, but I do, I do think it, it, it is a factor. When people have lots of money and lots of income and lots of affordability via lower interest rates, you find that uh, young adults move out of home more quickly. Um, household formation patterns are different. Um, things can change. You know, a given population and a given housing stock can choose to live in it in many different ways. You can have more people per property or less people per, per property, depending on family size, family dynamics and income dynamics as well. It's very complicated. I mean, at the moment, we know that we have lots of um, young adults living with their parents far longer than they want to because of high house prices. You might find that if you build lots of houses, that these people just move out um, from their parents and, and buy the new available houses and that that's a, a, a a source of um, not, much not much price elasticity of demand. Supply creates its own demand. Well, the demand is there. It's just constrained. It's just... Yeah. Um, but, but, but supply will bring forth that demand. Yes, it becomes it becomes effective demand, if you right. like, to use it. Right. Jim, we've, take, we, 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 we've taken a lot, and we'll come back to house prices a lot, I know. But um, I'll conclude, I think, not just this section, but the podcast, looking at the time, by saying that um, uh, higher bond yields might be one route out, not out of this, but might be something that, that uh, contributes to this. But until we get higher bond yields, I think we're going to be talking about house prices forever. Right, Chris, you, you caught me out on a couple of trivia questions today. I want to ask you who is meeting in the first round of the Munster Championship in Walsh Park on Sunday. 
Is that two cricket teams, Jim? <laughs> Have a great Easter, Chris, okay? Take it easy, buddy. Bye. You. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.